Welcome to Effort the Time, I'm Martin Brown. On this episode, I speak to journalist and presenter Sophie Wallace. She talks about how her time as an amateur gymnast allowed her to travel around the world and how it helped prepare her for her career in journalism. As always, if you're watching on YouTube, please remember to like and subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, leave a five-star review and subscribe. Let's go. Sophie Wallace. Martin Brown. How are you? I'm well, how are you? I am very good. Thank you for inviting me to come and chat to you. I'm quite excited. So you're a busy person. I am. You are. Do you find the time to reflect on on nostalgic things? Do you know what? I don't. But when I do it, I do it in really bizarre places. So if I'm driving in the car, I'll think about lots of different things. Because I'm so busy, I don't get much downtime. So it'll be when I'm driving or when I am lying in bed at night or, you know, at the bath or the shower or, you know, someplace really bizarre. I don't take time to stop. I'm very much one of those people that will lie in bed and think about something that happened 10 years ago and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe that happened. But that's really the only time that I've got to reflect because I am on the go 24 seven. I don't, I don't stop. So when you are lying in bed thinking, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. Is it dread or, <laughs> or is it, that was good fun? Occasionally a bit of both. I would say mostly dread. I think about and I'm sure everybody does this when they're lying in bed as well, thinking about like the most embarrassing things that have happened to them when you are, you know, so shocked about something that you've said or you've done. And you, all you can do is sort of reflect and go, oh my God, like I can't believe this has happened. Um, but when I do reflect on nice things, you know, it's, it's a nice, it's a wee cozy feeling. And it's something that I like to, I, I don't know about you, but like whenever I, something like springs into my head that's been really lovely, I'll send somebody a message. It could be whatever time of night it is, but like me and my friends in the group chat, for example, if I'm thinking about a really fun time that we had together, I'll be like, haha, remember the time, blah, blah, blah. We don't see each other very much because we're all so busy. So it's nice when it does happen. It doesn't happen often because I'm very much one of those people that dwells on, oh my God, I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so my nostalgic thing, as it were, isn't a particular moment or, you know, it's not a TV show. It's not anything that you could... It's not something normal. I think it's a bit weird, but it's strange because it's followed me throughout my life. So the thing that invokes the most sort of nostalgia in me is the smell of hairspray. (laughs) I know it sounds really bizarre and the smell of hairspray isn't particularly nice, but it's something which has followed me since I was about six, right the way through my childhood, all the way through my teenage years uh, and, and to where I am now today, working in telly and having to be around hairspray all the time. I haven't always worked in telly, obviously. Um, and for me, hairspray was a huge part in my performing career when I was wee and then I went away and I traveled the world with gymnastics and I was always around hairspray. And then I started working in telly and lo and behold, hairspray is everywhere. You can't go on telly without hairspray. And so there are so many nice memories that come attached to that really rank smell of like being in a tiny wee changing room and being around a big mist of hairspray. Performing 
as a child? What were you into? What were you doing? Where did it start? I've just realised that saying performing as a child makes me sound like some sort of circus monkey. And if my mum and dad are going to watch this, they're <laughs> going to be like, we did make her go and do these things. She totally wanted to do this on her own. Probably worth saying that I was that child that wanted to do everything. I couldn't sit still. If one of my friends was playing football, I wanted to go and play football. If one of my friends was playing a game of tag, I had to get involved with that. If one of my pals was doing you know, a tennis class, I wanted to go and do that as well. I wasn't, I wasn't very good at tennis, but I wanted to get stuck into so many different things. And although I wasn't particularly good at a lot of the things that I did do, um, I really enjoyed it, but I eventually found something that I was quite good at. A couple of things that I were quite good at. And the first one was dancing. So I went to my first dance class when I was three. My mum took me to this ballet class. I had to wear my hair in this tiny, tight wee bun. And my hair is really naturally curly. So I had this like really bizarre little like curly bits poking out from all sides of my hair and my hair was scraped right back. And my mum had hair sprayed my hair. To within an inch of its life and I remember standing in the middle of this ballet class surrounded by all of these wee girls and tutus bright pink tutus and I was such a wee tomboy I had on a pair of shorts and t-shirt with no shoes on with this ridiculous scraped back hair watching all of these like girls like flapping their tutus around me and I was like this is not for me at all and then all of a sudden I started doing it and my dance teacher was like actually you're quite good at this and it just totally went from there. So between the ages of three and about 15, 16, I was a ballet dancer. Um, I was professionally trained on point, which is when you go right up on your toes, which is really sore. Yeah, that always looks so painful. <laughs> it is painful. And I'm quite glad that I don't have to do it anymore. But I did that and then I was trained um, in lots of different varieties of dance. So I did tap dancing, I was a jazz performer. There was a bit of street dancing in there as well. There was a little bit of everything. So with dancing, obviously comes performances. And once a year, my dance school put on this massive performance where all of the different branches came together. And it was this huge show, first of all, at the Town Hall in Falkirk, and then at the McRoberts Centre in Stirling. And they still do it you know, to this day. They haven't been able to because of COVID and stuff recently. But this huge dance display... The one thing that takes me right back to the McDonald's Centre in particular is up the stairs where we all used to get changed. You're talking hundreds of girls, hundreds and hundreds of us packed into these tiny, tiny wee dressing rooms. It was it was so small and so sweaty and you couldn't see in front of you because there was hair lacquer, there was makeup, there was, you know, dresses and costumes pointing out from all directions. There was everything in there. And you're trying to get changed and you're like this, you, you can't touch anyone, you can't, like, you're fear to look when you're, like, doing all of these mad things with 101 different people around you. But it was great and the hustle and bustle of it was amazing. I remember there was one year in particular as well where I think I had something like 12 dances over the course of the show. So I had six in the first half and six in the second half and all of them were quick changes. We had these tiny little rooms off of the side of each stage and... I suppose the good thing about being in there was it wasn't as packed as upstairs, but it was so fast paced and it was so fast moving. I can't believe at the age of 12, I could remember 12 different dances, let alone, you know, get changed and get myself organised and do it all and get myself back out there and perform. Thinking back to it now, I'd be absolutely knackered. I don't know how I managed it. I think as children, 
you take on so much and you just expect like it's almost like it's not a big deal as a child to do that so you can soak in so much i mean they say children's brains are a sponge whereas so if you're a kid and you've got 12 dances you just learn 12 dances and you're like that's what we have to do as an adult it's so daunting so difficult when i you know if i'm listening to music sometimes quite often i'll find myself like if it's say for example like it's a similar beats per minute I will find myself doing a dance that I had learned when I was 10 to that song, even though it's not the same song. I'll be like, oh, remember, and then this is like a couple of the steps and, you know, I'll find myself washing the dishes and I'll be like tapping away and doing something really bizarre. It's just something that I think when you're a dancer, it always sticks with you. Um, And when I eventually kind of left dancing and went and did other things, it was, I, I found myself sort of like, like kind of missing that, like missing that, opportunity to learn so many different things. My body certainly felt it because I was knackered really, really easily. Um, but yeah, it was it was, it was, was really strange. I don't know why your brain retains information like that. It just does. It's really cool. Going back to the start, you said you were three years old. What made you want to start dancing? My mum and dad uh, were very much like, you are so hyperactive. <laughs> you are running about. I couldn't shut up. I still can't shut up. I just want to talk to everybody and everything. And I was nipping my mum and dad's ear. I had a couple of pals who went to ballet class in particular. And I was, like I say, I was a massive tomboy. Like I grew up around my dad quite a lot. My mum was away working often. So my dad and I would go and play football at the park. Um, you know, I was, I was always away doing daft wee things. And my mum was like, let's get you in doing something with your pals. So it's not just you and your dad. So I was like, right, okay. So it's more of a social thing, I suppose. When you're three, you don't really know what's going on. You don't really know what you want to do. So my mum and dad are like, oh, we'll try our hand at this and see if she's any good at it. And I'm one of these people who, once I find out I'm good at something, I want to do it and I do it and I do it. I think that's a pretty natural thing to do. And when I realised there was lots of other options I could go into, not just ballet, um, I wanted to go and do it all, and that's how you end up doing 12 dances in a show. So I grew up, I mean, I wasn't a dancer. Uh, really? Shock, shocking, <laughs> Why shocking. Why not? Um, but it reminds me of something. So when I grew up, I was like mad into skateboarding. And it's one of those things where if you're into skateboarding and you get hurt and you fall over and you learn these lessons where like you, you scrape your knees or something, but you just get up and you keep going. And I feel like that's kind of the same for, for dancing. Like you learn, like life is quite hard sometimes, but you just keep going and it prepares you for the rest of life, basically. Totally, yeah. Like when I was a gymnast, that's what that was. Less so with dancing because when you make a mistake in dancing, you fix it straight away. Whereas when you're a gymnast, you have to work at it and work at it and work at a skill, particularly big skills. You could spend weeks working on something and it would get so frustrating when you look around and you see the rest of your teammates nailing a skill and you haven't been able to do that. But it teaches you the values of hard work and it teaches you actually, you know, you will get there. It might take you a bit longer, but if you work hard and you try your hand at something as many times as you can, then the chances are you're going to manage. But it might not be as good as the rest of them, but if you can do a backflip, at least you've got yourself over. Do you know what <laughs> I mean? Um, you said it was your parents that, that got you into it. There's absolutely a stereotype of, of parents pushing children into it. You don't sound like that was the case. I think, you know, pushy parents definitely exist. 
for me, I was lucky enough to have parents who were just happy that I was out enjoying myself. Didn't matter if I was good at it or not. The only reason that I stuck at it was because I was good at it and I did enjoy it. And they were very, very supportive of that. They never pushed me to go and do something that I hadn't already said that I didn't want to do, if that makes sense. So, you know, when it came to traveling about with the gymnastics, I was given an ultimatum between I could either go and do competitive four piece or I could go and join this club and I was going to get to go all over Europe. I had to make that decision on my own. It didn't matter if my mum and dad thought, actually, I think you're good enough to go and do this, so therefore we're going to tell you to go and do this, or actually, we don't think you're good enough. So they they completely made that my decision. And so I feel, you know, kids, regardless of what age they are, in my experience anyway, talking personally, I was able to make those decisions for myself. My parents respected those decisions. Um... And I was just very lucky in that sense. It's incredibly competitive. And it's portrayed as incredibly competitive. How was your relationship with the other the other girls, um, the teachers, the, the other parents? I noticed the competitiveness most among the parents. That's what I did now. My dance school was different to other dance schools in the sense where our, um, we weren't focused on competition different when it came to gymnastics that's a totally separate sport um but among my dance school the the girls all got on together but the opportunities that came with my dance school didn't come in the form of you're going to go and get to come like compete you're the opportunities came in you know you've got the chance to go and dance on a cruise ship or we have this opportunity in london that you can go and do or we have this um program that if you're a really good ballet dancer then you can get into it and you've got the chance to go and perform at the the theatre royal in glasgow it wasn't so much a competitiveness amongst the girls because we were all good we were all really good and we all had that mutual respect for one another it's a bit different when we got older and we had the girls in our classes who were able to go on these Disney cruises or go on these different cruise ships and dance and that came at a financial cost. We couldn't, like me and my family, we couldn't afford that. And so there was almost like a, a natural segregation between the people who could afford to go and do that. They were obviously getting more training. So they were of a much higher standard than what some of the other girls were. I remember when I was 13 or 14 it was one of my last dance shows and it was um it was my jazz performance and in the front line were all of these girls who were able to go and do all of these extracurricular activities who could afford to go and do these extracurricular activities they were phenomenal dancers and so many of them I think actually every single one of them has been able to go on and work in the profession because they are just so good but my dance teacher had put me front and center of this dance and I stayed front and center for the whole thing. And I felt so uncomfortable because I was like, these girls are amazing. These girls, are they were all really, really good friends as well. And I had sort of like wiggled my way to the front somehow. And I just I just felt like all of these eyes were on me and it was it was really, really bizarre. Don't get me wrong, 
I was really proud about that because these girls were always at the front of the dances and quite rightly so because they were fantastic. It was the first, one of the first times that I had ever found myself in that position. And it was, it was a, it was a really odd feeling to have to process that when you're so young, when you're 13, 14, and you have to deal with that and put everything else aside and make it work and make it look good. That was a weird one. And it kind of taught me from such a young age that regardless of who you've got around you, if you can work together to make something brilliant, that's more important than what anybody else can afford, who people's friends are, the rapport that you've got with other people in the room. As long as you can work together to, to go for one main focus on something, then it's gonna be great. So you've said that you also were in gymnastics. When did that start? It's bizarre that I've spoken about dancing first because when I think back on my childhood, dancing, even though I did so much of it, doesn't kind of hold as many nostalgic memories for me. Gymnastics started a wee bit further on in my life. I was six. My dad was the school janitor at my primary school and there were so many extracurriculars that were running like every single day after school. There'd be something else going on in the main hall and on a Monday night, there was a gymnastics class. It was run by the local gymnastics school, Falkirk School of Gymnastics, by a lady called Lynn Callahan, And it was a similar thing. I just wanted to try everything. I just wanted to go and meet new people. When you're six and you're a blether <laughs> like me, I just want to go and nip people's ear and tell them stories and fill their heads with nonsense. So my mum and dad were like, right, okay, you've got nothing on a Monday night, you can go to gymnastics. So I ended up at the early class and very quickly I was moved up to the second class. and. When that happened, in my head, it wasn't a, you're getting moved up because you're quite good at this. It was a, you're getting moved up because that's just what happens kind of thing. And then after class one day, Jean and Lynn, the gymnastics coaches, pulled me to one side and were like, do you want to come and trial at Falkirk? I was like, yeah, sure. By this point, I was maybe like seven or eight. I'm starting to make decisions for myself now. Um, I told my mum and dad, I was like, there's this gymnastics class on a Tuesday. I think I got like a wee letter home. I'm pretty sure at the end of the class, um, the coaches had pulled my dad to one side. And there was a couple of us who would ask, it wasn't just me. Like there were other people in the class who were fantastic. I say fantastic, not to blow my own trumpet, <laughs> but like who, who were pretty good as well. Yeah, we were pulled to the side and then we were asked to go to this trial on a Tuesday night. It kick-started for me what was one of the most fulfilling, brilliant things to have ever happened to me. Um, I got so involved in this sport in so many different ways. I was competitive and then I traveled and then I became a coach. I went full circle and started coaching the class that I started in with Lynn um, before retiring through injury. And- What happened? I was 15. And I was uh, doing a really, really simple move. Really simple. So it's a round off back somersault. Maybe really like, simple. Really Ev everyone, <laughs> everyone can do it. Everyone can do that. Basically, you run, you do like a sort of cartwheel thing. You land with your legs together and you get this massive rebound and you do a backflip in the air with no hands and you land. And I was pretty good at them because I'm tall. I've got a great round off uh, and then a great rebound. 
that was in the air. And the theory is, before you tuck yourself into a little ball and you get yourself round, uh, you're supposed to make your body really, really straight. So your arms above your head, your body's really streamlined, you get to the highest point of your rebound, and then you tuck in really, really quickly, and that propels you around and you land on your feet. In my head, I was like, I'm gonna try and get myself as high as I can, I'm gonna make this the best round off back somersault I've ever done in my life. And I hit that high point, I got my body nice and straight, and then I could feel myself coming down, and it was like my brain was telling my body to do something, but my body wouldn't do it, so I ended up tucking, as I almost hit the floor, I did hit the floor, fell on my neck, um, knocked myself out, uh, winded myself, the lot, the works. My coach actually has it on video. Uh, and I, I can't get you the video. I wish I could, but I can't, but she's got it on video. It, it, it's painful. It's a really, really painful watch. Um, and I'm pretty sure you can hear my coach swearing after it as well. She flung down her iPad and run to came and get me. Um, but even though it was my neck that I fell on, it was the bottom of my back that got it. So I was told not to go back to training for six weeks. I went back after two um, and I just kept going. And it wasn't until I hit like 19, 18, 19, that actually it got really, really sore. That coupled up with the fact that I'd gone to university and I wanted to go out on a Tuesday night. But it was, it was unbearably sore. And then I made it worse by joining cheerleading. And then I became a cheerleader and started doing all of that stuff. But instead of doing it on a sprung floor, I did it on a hard floor. Um, but yeah, it was it was sore, it was hard. It was really, really hard having to step away from it. And I miss it, I miss it so much. You said you went traveling. Where did you go for, where was the first place you went with it and, and what was it for? So we were the Falkirk District champions, I think for like four years running. And then we went to the Scottish schools final and we came third, I think for two years on the trot. It was getting to the stage where we couldn't compete in our age category anymore. So Jean, who had been my coach since I was six, pulled all of us to one side and was like, right, okay, well, you can either continue to be competitive or you could join their display team which was called Falkirk Infinity. It was like dancing and gymnastics combined. So we would do these like five minute long routines that were a combination of like wee dancey bits, lots of tumbling, lots of skills, um, lots of lifts. And then we would do this thing called DMT, which is double mini trampette. So you run, you jump on this tiny little trampoline and then you do all these flips in the air and you land. So all, all in all, it was really about seven and a half minutes that we were doing. And the reason that we learned these routines were so we could go and perform at these big gymnastics festivals. So you would get them all around the world. And what would happen with teams like mine is that we would get invites from lots of different places. Um, so the first place that I went was Athens. And that came about six months after I joined Infinity. So I was 12 when I went. It was just an incredible experience. It's something that I completely took for granted at the time. Being 12, being in a foreign country on holiday, first of all, without your mum and dad, with people who are your pals, doing all of that at the age of 12, coupled up with representing your country was phenomenal. I was a flag bearer when I was 11 for the team. They gave me it because I was the youngest one. And they were like, on you go then, Soph walking out into this massive arena in Athens with hundreds, I'd touch on thousands of people watching you with teams from 
all over the world. There was a Swedish team, there were hundreds of Greek teams, there was us, there were Spanish teams, there were Scandinavian teams, they were from everywhere. And being immersed in that culture from such a young age and being able to not only train and do what you love in roasting hot temperatures. I remember we did a training session outside. That's so bizarre to us, especially living in Scotland when it rains half the time, but doing it in a roasting hot climate outside alongside going to see the Parthenon and going to the beach and, you know, experiencing Greek culture from such a young age was incredible. It was absolutely amazing. It's a strange feeling, like you're so far away from home. How did it feel for you to be so far from home? It's It was something that I think came naturally to me. I wasn't bothered. I think I was quite excited about being at home, being away from home for so long at such a young age because none of my pals had done that yet. I did find it hard at times, you know, as with any group of girls, there, there were fallouts and there were, you know, times where the older girls were allowed to do stuff and like we weren't. Um, that was frustrating for me because I was like, I'm one of the girls too. It didn't matter that I was so young. Um, but yeah, no, I felt like I took it in my stride and that stood me well for all of the rest of the times that I went away. So that's the first trip. How many more trips did you go on? Three in total, did Athens twice, did Malta once. Wow. Um, Malta was sandwiched in between the two Athens trips. We were supposed to go away more, but funding was always an issue for us. Um, we went and did our own fundraising things, held our own charity nights, we did backpacking. Like we could do as much as we could, but when you've got a team of 14 girls, there's only so much that a couple of hundred quid can actually get for you. So um, yeah, went to Malta and then went to Athens again, Malta, I was, I was totally taken with Malta, itching to get back. I was 14 when I went. Everybody who was a gymnast in Malta went there. So we were training there. The Maltese boys team were training there. Um, during the gym fest, we had the Scandinavian team, Scandinavian team they were in as well, training there. Um, and we were all staying in this massive hostel together. And again, when you're 14, this is something that, you know, most 14 year olds aren't going to experience. And it was wild it was absolutely wild especially when you're with the older girls as well I remember the the gymnasium had like put on this sort of like opening party for us so there was us and there was the boys team and there was the Scandinavian team and I remember it was the first experience I had like flirting with a boy it was nice <laughs> his name was Simon and he was Maltese and he had a dog tag around his neck and I was like oh I like your dog tag and he was like thanks it's because I'm diabetic so, <laughs> so like, but he was handsome I still keep in touch with him sometimes actually he's a really nice guy um but it was it it was it just it kind of opened up so many new experiences for me being 14 and being around these older people and getting a taste for like, you know, this is how I interact in a social situation that's not just with my pals. I think it's easy when you're in kind of second, third, fourth year of high school to be like, you know, I'm just gonna spend time with my friends and not meet anyone else. But when you're meeting other people, not only who are complete strangers, but also from different countries and you're interacting with them in a social setting, that's that's a phenomenal experience to have as a youngster. And I was so lucky to have that actually. It's interesting because it's quite, for a lot of people, that sounds so intimidating. Um, going off to a foreign country and interacting with so many people that you don't know. I think a lot of people would shy away from that, but it seems like you took it in your stride. I just like to speak to people. <laughs> I, honestly, I'm, I think at the bottom line is I'm really nosy. That's probably why I'm a journalist. I like to know about people and ask them questions and things. I think the other thing that probably helped as well is I had 
trained with my coaches and the people, a lot of the people that I was on holiday with, holiday, we call it a holiday, but a lot, of people, a, holiday. <laughs> a lot of the people that I was away with, I'd known from a very, very young age. So it was bizarre. It's like, you know how you separate your pals into little pockets of people? I spend the majority of my time in a social setting at home with my friends from school. But when I was seeing my friends from gymnastics, it was always at training. I think it was the first time that I had kind of experienced being able to go away and do social things with them. So it was great for us. It meant that we could go away and like meet people and chat to new people. It was just, it was fantastic. So um, I suppose if I didn't have that, it would have been very intimidating. Now, I think, you know, as an old, you know, I'm 24 now. You're so, so old. I'm so old. <laughs> oh my word, but sore back. Um, I do have a sore back. Um, but when you're younger, I think you've got less to lose. So you just go in and, you know, that wasn't my career. I was just there for, because I enjoyed it. We were all having a great time. Um, and it was, it was brilliant. And I don't think I cared about what people thought about me either. I still don't really care about what people think about me. As long as I'm having a nice time. That is fine. a very punk rock attitude to have and I appreciate <laughs> it I'm so punk rock but no it is it's it's I think it is a lesson to learn that you really need to not care what other people think of you and if you love something go and do it I think a lot of people hold themselves back they fancy doing something but the fear of judgment the fear of other people saying things about them holds them back and they stop doing it just go for it I think I feel like I've gone sort of like up and down with that throughout my life I've always done what I've wanted to do but when I was I'd maybe say fifth sixth year of high school possibly even first year of uni I think it was maybe second year of uni I started to get out of the habit of it but I would only do something if my pals wanted to do it I think that's a very natural thing for young people especially to do it's about learning that you don't have to do that that's how I've you know found happiness as blasey as that sounds but that's what keeps me content i was lucky enough to find pals later in life who the three of us are from you know totally different walks of life but we are all interested in the same thing and i often wonder if we were at school together actually i know for a fact if we were at school together we wouldn't have spoken to each other i would have been like really scared of her and she's a bit mental so i'm not gonna speak to her um we were all just so different and it's about trying new things and when you try new things I mean I did it and I found my best pals so yeah it's it's something that you kind of learn as you get older that actually it's all right to just do what you want to do and spend time on your own as well you don't have to do everything with your pals like spending time on your own is great. You ended gymnastics around 15 no, I was, I well, about 2015. 2015, um, so that's yeah, not that long ago. It's not that long ago. Um, and I couldn't stay away from it long because then I ended up uh, cheerleading at uni. How did that go? <laughs> Two years. Two years? Um, that was a big accident. <laughs> that, Pom- but, pom-poms but, and all? Well, yeah, no, definitely. People always downplay cheerleading. Cheerleading is going to be an Olympic sport because of the, the physical impact that cheerleading takes on your body is wild absolutely wild there's lots of different variations of cheer as well and me going to cheer class was a great example of me just doing something that I wanted to do I thought about doing it the year before I think in second year of uni I thought about going but I wasn't going to go because none of my pals wanted to go with me I wasn't confident enough to go on my own and then when I got to third year I was like actually I'm going to give this a bash by the time I got to fourth year the team had completely changed and we were like actually no we're good enough to go and compete 
Um, and so we did, we went away to competitions and, and I think we did like three com- like three competitions in the space of t- two weeks or something bonkers. Um, and now the GCU Wolves cheer team have so many different divisions, so many different captains. They go away and do loads of competitions every year. They're a very, very good cheerleading team. And it's been nice for me to see it go from completely recreational all the way through to actually a very competitive team to a high standard. So like you were saying about cheerleading there and gymnastics, I think there's becoming more and more um, recognition for them. You're saying cheerleading is going to be an Olympic sport. Gymnastics, and everyone appreciates gymnastics, I think. But recently, or in the last three or four years, there was Caitlin Ohashi who her video on YouTube went wild. Do you think more and more people are enjoying the sport of gymnastics? And do you think what will bring people to it? In terms of, I mean, it's the same as any sport. Do you know what I mean? When it comes to bringing people in, there's always a big influx of people who want to be gymnasts after they see Max Whitlock on the pommel horse at the Olympics. Or back in the day, it was Beth Tweddle when she was on the uneven bars. Bringing people into the sport isn't the problem. It's about how we treat people within the sport. Um, And there has been a lot of eyes on British gymnastics, Scottish gymnastics, um, since everything which has kicked off in the UK and even here in, uh, sorry, in the US and even here in Britain. At the end of the day, we have, as a coach, you have a duty of care for your athletes. It's so important that that's upheld. I was lucky enough that at my gymnastics school, we were we were all treated like gold. Um, our coaches were incredibly caring and they put our needs first. Whether that was, you know, we're exhausted, we feel like we can't train anymore. We were never forced to do anything that we didn't want to do. We were never pushed down and this, do you know what I mean? Like we were always actively encouraged to push ourselves to our limit, but we were never screamed and shouted at and told you must do this or else you're X, Y, and Z. I think the issue, I think there needs to be more scrutiny amongst coaches. I think there needs to be more calling out when a coach perhaps does step out of line. Um, Because there is a difference between pushing somebody to their limits and abuse. And bullying. And bullying. And bullying, absolutely. Like, being in a leotard when you're a teenage girl is intimidating enough. You're putting yourself out there to the world, basically. 100%. The last thing you need is a coach telling you, not even, you know, not even making a comment about your gymnastics, making a comment about your weight. Nobody needs that. Nobody needs to be sexualized when they're doing their sport. You're doing it because you're enjoying it. You do it because you love it. And putting athletes in a dangerous position is the last thing that any coach should want to intend. I think there needs to be scrutiny before coaches um, and screening before coaches actually go through their their training to ensure that this doesn't happen. And like I said, there's a lot of eyes on the governing bodies just now to make sure that what has happened doesn't happen again. Just don't be a dick. <laughs> just don't be a dick to <laughs> people. You, you, your words, not mine, Martin. <laughs> so... Let's rewind back. You have gymnastics, you have dancing, you are now a journalist. When did you want to first be a journalist? Is it something that you look back on with fond memories? 
And there is that video that you posted. I'm smiling thinking about it. I have wanted to be a journalist for as long as I can remember. Even though I did all of these sporty things, I never knew, like, that was never a career for me. I knew that I wanted to be a journalist. There's a video on my first day of primary school. My grandpa took his camcorder with him everywhere. And I'm standing with my wee blue blazer on. My hair is like scraped back off my face. My wee sticky out ears are pinning out. I was six years old. I have known since a very, very young age that this is what I've wanted to do. Um, and that was very much cemented when I went for work experience. I was 14. That was a total fluke. For some reason, working at the Falkirk Herald or being placed at the Falkirk Herald on work experience at my old high school was like the best thing ever. And you could go and like be a roving reporter and get the scoop and like do all of these mad things. So there were so many applicants from each year group who had wanted to go and do the Falkirk Herald. Now my guidance teacher knew that I wanted to be a journalist, but had to be fair on the other people who said that they wanted to go to Falkirk Herald for their work experience. So they pulled the names out of a hat. It just so happened to pull my name out of the hat. So I was like, woohoo. So it was a little bit of fate that I've ended up where I am today. Went for my work experience at the Falkirk Herald. On the fourth day, the editor pulled me in and was like, quite like you, you're all right. How do you feel about writing as a, a column, a weekly column, talking about life as a teenager growing up in Falkirk? So I was like, yeah, sure. I was a wee bit of pot of money in my pocket every month. And I was like, right, okay, I can write about that. Now, going back to the first columns that I ever wrote, they were so embarrassing, so <laughs> embarrassing. I remember I wrote one um, taking the mickey out of people who went to restaurants on Valentine's Day. And I was like... That screams of loneliness and teen angst. I, it totally was loneliness and teen angst. And it totally wasn't meant in malice, but it was one of those things where I was like learning. I had zero journalism experience, except from that week that I'd spent at the, the Falkirk Herald. And I was just writing these mad articles. I, I was picking up a couple of freelance shifts here and there with the Herald when I was still at school and the editor Colin Hume, he's no longer the editor, but he was a fantastic journalist. He was amazing. Um, I had spoken to him about universities and I was like, where's good, where's not good? And he had recommended Glasgow Cali as being, you know, a really good university to go to. And that's where I went. Um, and whilst I was there, I ended up working full time as a broadcast journalist while studying. So I was pulling the morning shift. I was in the breakfast shift at Central FM, getting up at the crack of dawn every single day, driving from Falkirk to Stirling, doing my shift until half past nine, ten o'clock in the morning, then driving to Glasgow, sitting in classes until five o'clock, sometimes cheerleading training till whatever time, and then driving home at night and doing that every single day until I completely burnt myself out. Uh, one of my lecturers, Christina McIntyre, she sat me down and went, what on earth are you doing? You are burning yourself to the ground. You are 20 years old. Get a grip. Start working at the weekend and focus on your studies. I'm like, okay then. Um, I, was, I was so gutted about that because I felt like I had had this opportunity to work five days a week at a radio station um, and that I was giving that up. In reality, I wasn't. She just wanted me to look after myself. And so I ended up doing that uh, and then started pulling shifts, not just at Central FM, but at uh, Kingdom FM and Fife until I finished uni, went full time at Kingdom FM at Fife and then ended up here in telly. <laughs> so when you look back at that video that you posted of your, or that your, your grandpa took of you, and then you see yourself now presenting the news on television, what do you think? How does that make you feel? 
I think one of the most poignant things actually that I've not thought about until now, my grandpa took that video. My grandpa passed away maybe about a year ago now. Um, my grandpa was my number one fan, number one fan. He, I was, I was just his, his, his wee, do you know what I mean? I was just his wee girl. Um, and he was my biggest cheerleader. And he was a man of few words, my grandpa. He was hilarious when he spoke though. And he just couldn't have gotten a nicer guy. Totally couldn't have gotten a nicer guy. So above all else, knowing that he took that video, I would like to think he was very proud of me. Um, but myself, when I see that video, it, it, yeah, I feel I, I feel very, very lucky, very privileged, not privileged, but I've worked really hard. And I think that's something that people underestimate. When people ask me what I do for a living, they go, oh, so you just go in and do you just read the auto cue and nah. At a weekend, for example, I'll come in, I'll help produce the programme, I have to find the stories, I have to write the stories, I have to interview the people, I have to cut all the pictures for the bulletin, I have to make sure that everything's factually correct, I have to give direction to reporters, I have to check scripts, I have to uh, speak to our colleagues in London and make sure that we can all share material, I speak to colleagues from other media places in the industry to make sure that we can all get the material that we need. I have to make myself presentable for going on telly the actual presenting the news part is such a small portion of what I do um I remember somebody made a comment when I was at uni saying that they thought the only reason that I wanted to be a journalist was because I wanted to go on telly I think a lot of presenters get that it was infuriating it's our job to do so many things. It's our job to hold people to account. It's our job to ask questions that the general public can't ask. It's our job to tell stories. It's our job to make those stories interesting. And that's the reason I do it, because I'm passionate about people. And so to hear that, oh no, she only wants to do it because she wants to work on telly. That was never the, that was never the goal. I started working in papers. I thought I was going to work in papers for the rest of my life. I thought I was going to be an arts and entertainment correspondent from a local newspaper. Do you know what I mean? And I would go and do that in a heartbeat. I love broadcast. I love broadcast media. I love it. I love talking. So I think <laughs> I'd be wasted on a newspaper when I've only got limited amount of time to speak. But that comment gave me mega drive to go and do it. Sophie Wallace, thank you very much for coming on F at the time. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Sophie for speaking to me. You can follow her on Twitter at STVSophie and on Instagram at STV underscore Sophie. Please remember to subscribe and leave a five star review. Until next time, catch you later.